Well, we're going to be going to a wedding today, starting in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, they knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Great story. So much in this story and we all Probably most of us have heard this story. We come with our preconceived notions about what happened here. We start out at a wedding, joyful celebration. And then we're introduced to a drama. A drama unfolds before us. It's not a life or death emergency for those of us in healthcare, but it is a social emergency. <laughs> the wine has run out at a wedding. Well, I would say if it's your wedding, that probably may be a life or death emergency. <laughs> and then we're introduced to, I would say, something a little bit strange, maybe even uncomfortable, this interaction between Jesus and his mother. But no matter, it resolves in such a magnanimous, incredible way when Jesus does an unprecedented creative miracle and takes water, H2O, and turns it into wine, which includes carbon, alcohol, sugar. It's, a, it's an incredible creative miracle. The wedding is saved. In our minds, the bride and groom then go on to live happily ever after. <laughs> and we just move on to the next chapter because... That little uncomfortable bit there, we just don't know what to do with it. It's sort of there, but Jesus is the hero, so let's just forget about it and move on. Well, I don't like to do that. I like to sort of go after, well, what was going on back there? 
Because the more that we can learn about Jesus, the more that we respect him, the more that we love him, the more that we want to be like him. And the more that you want to be like someone, it actually changes your brain. That's why we become, become so concerned with sports heroes that lead our kids astray with their behavior. Why? Because whoever you want to be like is going to affect you. Maybe most of us are at the age where we no longer want to be like the sports heroes, but maybe the, the owners who own the team franchise, that's who we'd like to be like. But whoever it is, is going to affect your brain, and the way you think about life. So I want to look now at, at Jesus, where he is in his life. Let's look at his mother, where she is in her life, and let's try to see what happened in this interaction and see what we can learn. Well, Jesus is 30 years old. He has just begun his ministry. He was living with his mother and his brothers and sisters, and we know from Matthew chapter 13, Jesus has four brothers and sisters, so at least two sisters. So he is one of seven. He was living with his family there in Nazareth, but he has recently left the family and gone to see John the Baptist, who's baptizing at the Jordan River. And we learn, we're in John chapter 2, and if you go back to John chapter 1, we can enter the story of what's, what's unfolding there. But John baptizes Jesus. Jesus comes out of the water. He sees the Holy Spirit descend on him. The Holy Spirit then leads Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights where he's tempted by the devil to try to take an easy road out, not to go to the cross. He promises him all kinds of things, pleasures, wealth, but Jesus doesn't submit to that. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't fall to temptation. He overcomes, he resists, and he comes back. And now in John chapter 1, as Jesus is coming back, John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I didn't know him when I saw him, but the one who sent me to baptize, in other words, God, he told me the one that I see the Holy Spirit descend on and remain, that's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That is the Son of God. And John says, I'm here to testify that that is the Son of God. Well, John is standing with his disciples. And so two of them, John, the one who's writing the book, and Andrew say, well, well, we want to follow the Son of God. And so they start after Jesus. And so Jesus picks up his first two disciples, Andrew and John. Well, Andrew has a brother. Anyone know his name? Simon Peter. So Andrew then introduces Simon Peter to Jesus. John has a brother. Anyone know his name? James. James and John, Andrew and Peter. And by the way, James and John are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. So they join Jesus at this time because Jesus now walks with them back to where they live 
in the Capernaum area. They live in Bethsaida. Jesus also picks up two other disciples, Philip, and Philip introduces Jesus to Nathanael. And Nathanael classically says, "Has anything good come out of can anything good come out of Nazareth?" And when Nathanael comes to meet Jesus, Jesus says to him, "Before Philip called you, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you." Well, Nathanael speaks for probably the rest of the Jewish nation. They have not seen a prophet for 400 years. He says, you are the king of Israel. You are the son of God. With, these, with this group now, very excited that they have finally met the Messiah, it says, we open this passage on the third day. This is two days after they have just met. He's taking his disciples on a field trip. He's going to a family wedding. He's going to walk with them about 16 miles, a good distance. But Mary, his mother, is actually going to travel about eight miles to get from Nazareth to Cana. Jesus is coming from Capernaum. And they're going to meet, and they're going to have this strange interaction. We imagine that that Mary was probably close to the family. That's why she knows this secret that they have run out of wine, not something that they want everyone to know. We learned that there were multiple servants at the house, and there was also a master of the feast. So this was probably a wealthy family's wedding. I would imagine for wealthy families, it Maybe even matters a little bit more if they run out of wine than if you were at a poor person's wedding. But we have to also remember that wine in these days, it was not as fermented as it is today. And it was preferred instead of water because water often had bacteria in it that often would give you some GI problems because you, you really water was suspect. But wine, because of the fermentation process, was just a safer beverage. So everyone is going to prefer wine, and if they they are at your wedding, you don't want it to run out. Jesus' mother, probably close. Some people think this was actually one of her daughters. I I don't think so, um, because I I would imagine John would have mentioned it was Jesus' sister's wedding. Uh, He probably also... It says Mary was invited. Usually the mother's not invited to the daughter's wedding, so it doesn't fit to me. But I would say a close relative because she's on the inside here. And she is afraid. Somehow she is triggered by the potential embarrassment of her family. And she comes to Jesus, and they have this interaction. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? I'm going to suggest to you that he's also triggered, that something that she says, they have a bit of a history here, is immediately he's pushing back. He doesn't call her mother. There are words in his language. In fact, in every language for mother, he doesn't use that word. He uses woman. It's a, it's a more formal, distance term. And he says something we wouldn't really expect to say, what does this have to do with me? 
But then he says, my hour has not yet come. In the book of John, the hour is the time of his death. Why is Jesus thinking about his death at a wedding? Well, he knows that as soon as he starts doing miracles, he is going to start receiving, collecting opposition. Jesus knows that he is not the kind of Messiah that people want. Well, what kind do they want? Well, we just had an election. I, I don't know about you, but we've received a lot of flyers in the mail for people running for office. And what did they say? Vote for me, and I will fight for you in Washington. Vote for me, and I will make sure you have more money, a better job, clean water, clean air, you name it, less taxes. You will be better off if you vote for me. I didn't get any flyers that say, if you humble yourself, <laughs> if you deny yourself and pick up your cross, you can be part of my kingdom. Are you catching this? Amen. This is upside down. They didn't want it then, and we don't want it today. We want someone who's going to allow us to continue our lives exactly the way that they're going. We don't want to change. We want you to make sure I get to keep living this lifestyle with this mindset, maybe even better, more resources, so I can continue doing exactly what I want to do. And Jesus immediately, <laughs> immediately is saying, repent, repent. Repent. I didn't get any flyers with repent on them. <laughs> Jesus is saying, you have a problem. You think the problem is with the government. You think I'm here to take over for the Romans. One of the interesting things is, is that in the prophecies, he is going to have the government on his shoulders. He is going to rule uh, on a kingdom that's never going to end. That is part of it. But he doesn't want to rule selfish, proud, arrogant, whiny people. He wants to rule people whose hearts are ready to be in his kingdom. That's a fun kingdom. That's a great, enjoyable kingdom to rule and reign. People who love each other. And so he's starting really where you have to start with character. But nobody wants to start with that. So now let's talk about, woman, what does this have to do with me? And what is a trigger? Well, a trigger typically is from our amygdala. It's this part of our brain that responds to scary things. I say scary. It's a pattern recognition region of the brain. It recognizes, I have seen this before, and this hurt me before. Could be with the person. Could be someone who just looks like the person who did that to you. But the amygdala is going to grab that. It does things, when I say pattern recognition, you're walking in the woods and you jump back because you see a snake. 
didn't even go through your logic center, just an immediate trigger. But in closer inspection, it, you realize it's just a stick. It was a little bit in the shadow. Now you've run it through your logic center and say it's not moving. It looks, well, actually it is a stick. I'm not in any danger. But initially you were triggered. You don't have control over your triggers. It really comes out of your experiences, your family of origin. It's not sin to be triggered. What I want to look at with you today is Jesus' interactions with his mother that we read about in the New Testament. And can we come up with any conclusions from his interactions that might allow us to understand why she is triggered by embarrassing situations and why he is triggered by her? And then the most amazing thing I think we can discover is why he changes his mind and does such a phenomenal miracle. Well, let's look at the four interactions with Jesus and his mother that are recorded. I've written the four here on the board. The first one is in the temple. We're talking about the one in Cana. He then has one in Capernaum. And lastly, I'll talk about that one first. Jesus is on the cross in Jerusalem. He is dying, and he sees his mother and his disciple John. And he says, woman, this is your son. Son, here is your mother. Jesus loved his mother. Jesus cared for his mother. He, in fact, is saying, I don't even want you to be taken care of by one of my biological brothers and sisters. This John is such a good man. I want him to care for you. I'm going to give you the very best. Jesus loved and cared for his mother. Let's go to the first time they have an interaction. Jesus is 12 years old. Mother and father have brought him to Jerusalem to the feast, to the festival, the Passover. And now that it's over, they all pack up and leave. Well, they forgot Jesus behind. They left him. He was at the temple. They don't discover this for a day after they have left. And you can imagine this because you would imagine now that Mary and Joseph have six other children, at least six other children. And the ones that you tend to forget, they're usually not the rebellious, rowdy, always talking types. It's the quiet, observant ones that are easily overlooked. Mary and Joseph get back. They find Jesus in the temple. And Mary says to Jesus, Son, why have you done this to us? We have been looking everywhere. Why have you distressed us so? Well, she's accusing him of something. She's saying, Jesus, actually, you're responsible for what I'm feeling right now. And Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. Well, we can spiritualize that, but I believe what, what he's saying is looking means you actually didn't know where I was. Don't you know me, Mom? I'm always in the temple. That's all I ever talk about. 
That's all I ever think about. That's all the only place I want to be. Don't you know me, Mom? I know you're busy. I know you've got other things going on. But you left me in the place where I always am. He doesn't receive her accusation. He doesn't receive any shame. You see, Mary's feeling a little shamed. If you, you lose your child, ladies, is that shame? So, yeah, yeah. You can understand. Whose fault is that? You're going to blame the child, but you're feeling it. You are distressed. And what we notice about Jesus is he's not receiving it. He's not angry with her. He's just pointing out, we've got some responsibilities here, and this problem is not mine. It says something beautiful after that. It says he went home with them and submitted to them. But when we come up on the second episode, which we are in now in Cana, he's 30 years old and he's no longer going to submit to his mother. In fact, he doesn't call her mother. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? We're going to come back to that, but let's talk about number three because I think that's perhaps even a more powerful example of individuation. Jesus saying, I am not an extension of you. Jesus' mother and his brothers are living in Nazareth. They have walked the 16 or 20 miles to get to Capernaum because Jesus at this point is now fully into his ministry. He's doing miracles. He's attracting incredible crowds. And they believe, it says, they think he's out of his mind. They believe he's lost his mind. They need to come and rein him in. He's called, causing quite a stir. Off they go, Jesus, mother, brothers. And brothers in the, in the Greek means brothers and sisters. So the whole family comes and they can't get in because there are so many people listening to Jesus. So they send him a message so Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside waiting to speak to you. They'd like to speak with you. And Jesus says, which causes us probably the most discomfort of any of these, who are my mother and brothers? And he waves to the crowd and says, those who do the will of God are my brother and sister and mother. Ooh, those who do the will of God are my brother and sister and mother. That is individuation. He is no longer an extension. He doesn't go out to see his mother, and he doesn't say make room for her so that she can come in. If that doesn't make some of us uncomfortable, then you're not reading it correctly. This is a huge break with social convention today, and it was even bigger back then, which is why they're recording it. Can you believe this? He didn't go out to see his mother. And it's telling us something about Jesus. And I'm hoping that we can learn it for ourselves. Does your family try to control you? Is there someone in your family, most of the people that I have talked to, 
There is someone in the family. It may be your mother, father, one of the kids, uncle. Is someone, you just feel control when they're around. Is it possible that you need to draw some boundaries? Jesus is drawing a very clear boundary here. Such a boundary, it makes us uncomfortable. Can't you just, I mean, he could have just invited her in, uh, a little chat. Now, I'm not saying he didn't talk to her when he was finished speaking. We don't know what happened, but that interchange is in the scripture, and it's in there for a reason. We are to draw boundaries with not only our parents, but even other members of the family who you sense are trying to control you. Now, the problem, that sounds um, like, like fun and games, until you realize that when you do that, it's going to trigger some anger from them. That's why we don't do it. That's why we make sure everyone's happy with us. Because when you make them unhappy, when you, you've been pleasing them, like a good people pleaser should, and when you step out of the rut that you have been in, and you are starting to act differently, saying, no, uh, every time you call, I'm not going to give you time. Every time you want to see me, and this is something that Naomi and I have had to to build into our marriage. Every time someone wants to see me, I don't jump. I often will say, no, this is not a good season to get together. That's hard for me. Oh, am I too proud? Am I too arrogant? Am I too big now to see them? You know, I'm not responsible to them. I'm responsible to God for how I use my time. And so are you. Just because I used to get together with you every time you called or every week or every month, I'm actually free not to do that. And you're free to have whatever reaction you need to have, but God is a good father to you and to me. I want to discuss, I want to give you some time to discuss that, but I want to go a little bit further, and I want to talk about Jesus' mother, because when we talk about people who trigger us, we can sort of villainize them or make them sound like they're bad. But if someone triggers you, there's probably a good reason. They have probably been through something that causes them to be very sensitive to the situation that they're facing right now. And they want to transfer that anxiety, that emotion, that fear of shame, that fear of embarrassment, that control, they're going to try to transfer it to you. Does Mary have any reason in her life where she might have had a situation that was embarrassing to her? How about a 14-year-old girl who has a visitation by Gabriel the angel? who says you are going to be carrying the son of the Most High. He will rule on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom will have no end. And she says classically, let it be unto me as you say. And the angel left out a few things, like how her family is going to respond. Are they going to buy this whole, I'm pregnant with God's child well, we have people today that don't buy that. It's, it's, it takes a, an incredible leap of your imagination 
to believe it. Well, Joseph didn't believe it. He has to have a visitation from an angel or a dream to tell him, hey, she's telling you the truth. Let me ask you a question. Did an angel visit every one of Mary's relatives? Probably not. Probably not. So what were they thinking about her? Well, the angel actually gives her an out and says, go visit your cousin Elizabeth in Judea. She goes down, spends three months with Elizabeth when Mary is newly pregnant. Well, that's good news to Mary. Why? Because Elizabeth, the child jumps in her womb, and she believes her. She says, you are carrying the child. You are carrying the mother. You are the mother of my Lord. You, you are who you say you are. Mary, I believe you. That is like water on a desert to Mary. Because Elizabeth has something else that Mary needs. Elizabeth, being barren all of her life, knows something about shame. And she can understand what Mary is going through. But Mary, of course, is thinking in her mind, I've got to go back. And at three months, John the Baptist is born. Mary now goes back to face her family in Nazareth. She's three months. She's showing by this time. How was that? How were the, the looks from her family, from her neighbors? How, how was the interaction? Some sneers, some raised eyebrows, some winks, and yeah, we know. Some little contempt. Not only, I believe, was Mary affected by how people treated her, but Mary was also feeling shame and embarrassment for her family. Her parents are embarrassed about this, and I'm sure they're letting her know. So you're embarrassed, not only for you, but you, you're just doing, and she, everyone thinks their daughter is immoral. She's only doing what God said, but they believe she's immoral, and this is affecting the parents. Mary is picking up shame and embarrassment also for her family. She is sensitive to familial, embarrassing situations. She, she has had this at a very early age. Then there's a trip to Bethlehem. Any reason for some anxiety there? <laughs> Giving birth, your family's not there. No familiar surroundings. Child is born. Herod decides he's going to kill all the children. Angel comes to Joseph and says, go to Egypt. You've got a newborn. You don't speak Egyptian. How is that landing on this mother with a newborn child? Does she have any reason to develop some anxiety, some control issues? And the wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. How is it traveling to Egypt with a huge amount of gold? in your purse or saddlebag, would that give you some anxiety? It would give me some anxiety. As we look at people, we start to understand 
why they are the way they are, and we develop compassion for them. And we're able to love them even though they may trigger us. After Egypt, it's time to come back. Why does Mary not want to go to back to Bethlehem? Seemed people were pretty friendly there. You ever thought about that? Why don't they choose? It says they didn't want to go to Judea. Well, Jesus would be the only one in his kindergarten class. All the other babies were killed. All the other boys were killed. He's going to be the only boy in his class probably for two years above and two years below. How would that make you feel in the supermarket as the women are looking at your only boy in town? Because if they would have killed your boy, all the other ones would have survived. Sort of a strange survival guilt complex that you might develop. Like, yeah. This woman has been through a lot. And Jesus loved her, but he set boundaries with her. And if that's not enough, it appears that Mary's husband, Joseph, has died. She's a widow, unexpected, seven children at least, husband dies. She has a lot of things that would make her want to control her circumstances, especially when her eldest son, the one who's supposed to now be responsible for the family, suddenly decides that he's got a ministry in another city. Likely that's not good news to her. What I want to do is I want to pause and I want us to discuss a couple of things. Number one, is someone in your family controlling and triggering you? How do you respond to that trigger? And can you discuss also why that person has developed this controlling attitude? What do they really want? What did they experience in their life and their family of origin that would make them trigger you? So where are we now? We are, we've discussed the situation with Jesus. We've looked at his situation. We've looked at Mary and understand why she may be triggered by her family being embarrassed or by someone being embarrassed. She's very sensitive to embarrassment, maybe even prone to anxiety. And when she is embarrassed, she may tend toward Control. That's a very common human pattern. In fact, most of us can probably even recognize that pattern in ourselves. That when we're embarrassed, when, we, when there's a threat of embarrassment, even if your children may embarrass you, one of the reasons we get so angry when our kids don't do their homework is not so much for them, but it's for the embarrassment of the parent. That you may not turn out to be the person that's going to represent me well. That we and so control comes in and we put down rules and we, instead of allowing them to face their consequences, you see there is a problem when we allow people around us, close relationships to make their own decisions. 
And the problem is, if they make poor decisions, the decisions do affect you. You wish it was just only a consequence to them, but if it's your child or your parent or your brother, sister, it does affect you. It does affect your family, which makes us all tend toward, look, I want to control this. I see where this is going. I'm going to prevent that from happening. I have more wisdom than you, and I'm going to control you. The problem is it doesn't work in relationships. That control doesn't endear someone to you. It makes them feel like they are just an extension of you. And in much of the world, children are treated as simply an extension of the parent. Everything I'm thinking, I want you to be thinking. When I want something done, I just need to think about it, and you will do it. If I'm angry or upset, you better be jumping around and a little bit angry and upset too. And those of us who grew up in families like that, we can easily become people pleasers and we can become very triggered or sensitive to people trying to control us. Well, now we are at the point in the story where Jesus actually changes his mind. We can come up with some reasons. And by the way, you know, look at the scriptures yourself. There's a lot that's left out, and I am always looking at scriptures to say, well, what's the best fit? What do I think happened there? You may disagree with me, and you're welcome to. Come up with your own solution and see what seems to explain What's going on here? Why does Jesus change his mind? When the wine runs out at your wedding, what is the first question you are going to ask? How much wine was there? How much do we have now? And who's drinking all of it? And, and, and where can we get, can we get more now at this point? Well, if we send the servants out to get more wine, the only people that they're going to encounter are people who are not invited to the what? Wedding. How is that going to go? So they'd rather not case the town for more wine. So they have a, a serious problem here. Well, who's drinking it? Well, Why might Mary be concerned? How many people came with her? Hmm. She brought six kids. Maybe some of them are married to the wedding. Would that make you a little more sensitive about the wine running out? Yeah. Yeah, it would. Because you may actually be responsible for that. How many people did Jesus bring to the wedding? Ooh. Mary is coming to him because Jesus has brought six people, to my counting, could be a few more, a few less. It says disciples. Reading between the lines, I believe he had six at this time. Don't think he had a full 12, and it's disciples, so it's at least two. But I think he brought six with him, the two sets of brothers, Philip and Nathaniel. Now, the text is not really clear. It says Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. 
That's a little bit of a mistranslation of the Greek because they couldn't have been invited to the wedding. He just called them. This is the third day. It's two days after he called Philip and Nathaniel. There are no telephones. Nobody jogged 16 miles to ask permission if Jesus could bring six. He just showed up with them. Mary is coming to Jesus because Jesus has brought six to the wedding. Mary has brought at least six to the wedding. She's got a party of 14 at this wedding. Would that make you a little bit embarrassed? Especially when you look and you notice that the Sons of Thunder are downing an incredible amount of wine. <laughs> so Mary comes to Jesus, and she says, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what does it have to do with me? And I believe, in my imagination, she just goes like this. <laughs> and sees Peter going like this, <laughs> toasting his brother Andrew. <coughs> and Jesus changes his mind. It does have something to do with him. Now the disciples have a reason to be drinking. They have just met Jesus. They have walked 16 miles. They are thirsty. They are fishermen. And who do they think they are with? The King of Israel, the Son of God. If you are with the King of Israel at a wedding, that would be an open bar. That would be the definition of the wine flowing freely. Unlimited resources. John the Baptist said it. Nathaniel said it. You are the king of Israel. We're going to a wedding with you. This is going to be quite a party. And Mary notices, and then I think Jesus notices. You see, he's, he's unaware of what's happening He's just having a good time. I mean, if you're at a wedding, I've never been concerned that the food or the wine was going to run out or anything that you wanted. That is not my concern. And Jesus hasn't even been thinking about it. Mary points it out to him. I think that Jesus reevaluates the situation. Now, I want you to think right now that you are Jesus. What would you do? What would you do if you were Jesus? You had brought six uninvited guests to a wedding, and they're out of wine now. How would you start to feel? Would you start getting a little perspiration uh, at, at the armpits? Would you start to uh, shake a bit? Would you feel like you needed to, I think we could leave now. Peter, pour that wine back. Would you pour the wine back? <laughs> what would you? I can tell you what I would do. Peter, James, and John, would you stop drinking right now? <laughs> you have been drinking since we got here. I'll get you some more later. Just stop. Pour that stuff back. Look, let's go look for some. I would be trying to control them. I would be feeling, you see, that is what we do, right? You just saw a trigger. I would be triggered, and I would be pushing that onto my 
guests. Just saying that, I can feel my heart rate has gone up. And that's what we want to talk about today. When you are triggered, what happens to your physiology? Are you relational at all? Am I treating them as if they are, maybe they're new friends, but I'm treating them like they're not friends at all. They're actually my enemies. They've gotten me into a jam now. They're doing me a disservice. When we get under stress, because this amygdala recognizes a pattern, I'm going to be in trouble, I'm going to be embarrassed, it comes out in anger, and we become poorly creative. We just want the problem to go away. We just want this situation to be over. And we want it over as fast as we can get it over. Jesus retains his creativity. And I believe that he does that because he recognizes a trigger. He continues to breathe calmly through it. I started getting a little shortness of breath and rapid breathing. He retains his peace and retains his calm and he probably stood up and he went with the servants and he saw six stone water jars. And because he's not in this fight or flight mode, because he's creative, I believe that he said, huh, six water jars, I brought six disciples. Well, this should take care of the problem. Daddy, can, can we do this? You see, I'd like to do this for them. And he says to the servants, fill them with water, take some out, and take it to the master of the feast. He does this miracle, his fear that it was going to start him on the road to crucifixion, actually doesn't happen. Nobody knows except the servants and his disciples. And why, are, why is no one going to say anything? Because no one wants the guest to know. Nobody wants anyone to know. It's just embarrassing. This whole thing is going to be hush-hush. Jesus fear that him, what his mother wants is this major miracle or something to perhaps she saw Elijah do or she heard the story about Elijah in the Old Testament who visits the widow and has oil and just keeps pouring it, and the oil never runs out. And that Jesus will stand there and pour the wine, and it will never run out, and everyone will see what he's doing. That doesn't happen that way. Nobody knows about this. Six 30-gallon containers of wine, and it's not just any wine. This is fine wine that he produces creatively. By the way, if you do the math, it's about 900 bottles of wine. 900 bottles of wine, six 30-gallon containers. This is an amazing miracle. The disciples, therefore, continue to believe that he is the king of Israel, and he has unlimited resources 
even if he is not exactly what they expect. And it's true for them, and it is true for you. Jesus is the King of Israel. He is not running for the office of Messiah. He actually is the Messiah. There is no other choice. You can accept this Messiah who says, I want you to change to be part of my kingdom. Or you can keep looking for some other uh, Messiah, but there isn't another one. He knows he's the only game in town, and he knows that they're going to kill him. But his disciples believed in him. What I want to do now is have you discuss, just to finish up, what I'd like you to discuss is how you can, when you are triggered, become calm again. You've discussed your triggers. You've discussed why you might be triggered. And now I want you to spend a little bit of time thinking about how you might become calm again. I have on my website some breathing instructions, some breathing materials. I use this regularly. This is not something you can do when you're in a crisis if you haven't practiced it. It will not work. The best you can do is a this big sigh. And by the way, when you hear yourself blow one of those sighs, it means you've been holding your breath, which means you're under stress. <clears throat> so when you hear yourself breathe these big sighs, maybe it hasn't even registered to you consciously that you're under stress, but your body physiologically is telling you, whether it's in traffic, whether you're with your family, whatever it is. I want you to think about how you might plan for the next time you're triggered so that you have some tools in your toolbox, some resources, so that you don't say more, do more than you intend. Jesus did not. He was triggered. He did not sin. When I'm triggered, often I will. It is part, we just keep going with it because the emotions, the physiology is there. We cannot stop it. This is what I'd like you to discuss. Is it possible that once you've recognized your trigger, can you recognize it just a little bit earlier next time? Because the earlier you can recognize it, the less adrenaline, the less of these chemicals is in your system. The chemicals aren't in your system. You can, you can still pull it back. You can still get back under control. It's much harder once you've started yelling at people. Now it's going to be much harder to get under control. Your heart rate is up. You've got your physiology all involved. If you can catch it, as soon as you're triggered, catch it earlier next time. So let's talk about that, how you might. Now you've mentioned your triggers. You've discussed them. Let's try to, can you catch it earlier before it snowballs into something you're embarrassed about? So there are, there are healthy and unhealthy ways of, of breathing, just so you're aware. And you can get a clue by watching how an infant breathes. They breathe from the belly. Uh, they don't breathe. They're not chest breathers. They're breathing from the belly. But when they're startled, you watch their breathing pattern change. Uh, it has been said that you actually can't change your emotions without changing your breathing. So it's very closely tied together. And what will they do? They will go 
it's a startle. They're holding their breath. When you hold your breath, the body dumps a bunch of chemicals in because it's saying there's danger here. And pretty soon you wait long enough, you'll hear a big wah! <laughs> and what will you hear after that? <sighs> They're holding again. They have changed their breathing pattern. It's fueling this emotion they have. But we all do the same thing, probably minus the wah. <laughs> but you change your breathing. Maybe we need to do some more of that, is what I've heard. Yes, we want a smooth, it's called a synchronous pattern. We want a smooth, synchronous pattern. So it becomes erratic like this when we two seconds in, five seconds out, hold for a while, and that's when you have these big sighs. The quicker you can convert your breathing back to this synchrony, four in, four out, things like that, it will help you rein it back in, not instantly. The chemical is already circling, circulating in your system, but it will stop the chemical from, from the body from continually dumping it in because every time you hold your breath and, and breathe shallowly, you're telling your brain you're still in danger. You better be very alert. So to be very alert, it's dumping more chemicals to help you. So you may need to start counting. I've got breathing counts on my website, things like that, to be able to, uh, I use them actually before sleep. It gets me relaxed and allows me to sleep. One thing I want to mention to you as we're talking about triggers, as we're talking about families, as we're talking about embarrassment, is the concept, I think one of Jesus' major strong points, and that is his humility. You don't want to miss that. And all this knowledge gathering that we do, and some of you have found this a very entertaining or engaging or uh, uh, full of knowledge this morning, don't miss the humility. You have to be willing to be embarrassed if you're doing what you know is right. Do not miss that message for Jesus, for his mother, and for you. It will cost you to do what God has told you to do in your sphere of influence. It's going to cost you. You're going to be embarrassed. You're going to need humility because humility says, I know where my value is coming from. It's coming from my father who approves of me. I don't need your value. It hurts when you withhold your value from me or you look at me or you speak disparagingly to me. But I, I'd like your value. I don't need it. I am getting my value from my father, and Jesus was getting his value from his father. Mm -hmm. And when we're triggered, the question I want you to ask yourself, the trigger brings up a bigger question. Where do you get your value? Because by being triggered essentially says your value is coming from people. Your value is, is there's something here that you're about to lose. And if it continues into anger, certainly not only is your value coming from those people, but you are continuing to try to make sure that there is no social embarrassment, there's no loss for you. How much time do you spend trying to make sure that other people are okay with you? If you're spending an inordinate amount of time, it's sapping your strength, it's taking your energy. And could it be that this morning... Your father is calling you to walk at a higher level. 
which to me means I have to disappoint some people. I'm not going to do or say or be exactly who you think I should do, I should be, or say what I should say, what you think I should say. I need to say what God has given me. But I'm staying humble enough to be able to receive correction from people. If I, I'm listening, but I don't have to obey you. I'm responsible to God alone. I'm obviously having people around you that can help you point you to the word of God and saying, hey, you're out of line here. Very, very helpful. Not what, it's not what I'm saying. But I think many of us, especially in our culture of political correctness, we are just towing the party line. We just don't want to rock the boat. Jesus rocked the boat. He broke with social convention so much that they killed him. But it says they actually killed him out of envy. They wanted to be like him. Are we following his example? Let me just bless you and let you go.